All right, so welcome to Game Cool Books. Uh, this is Wesley Schantz, and joining me this time for a conversation is Dr. Lauren Shohit, uh, teaches at Villanova University and is a scholar of Milton and the Renaissance primarily, but also has published on Philip Pullman's work. So thanks for joining us, uh, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited you're doing this project. Yeah, well, so I got in touch with you after uh, I found your piece, uh, Reading Dark Materials, in the edited collection, uh, Dark Materials Illuminated. Um, I know that's you know some time ago now since you've written that, um, but I found it to be a really interesting uh, academic and rigorous treatment of Pullman, maybe the best one that I've read so far, and to me, the best one in that collection. Um, so uh, could you just talk a little bit about what you mean by reading dark materials, um, and feel free to kind of give spoilers from the story. You, you range over the whole trilogy uh, in that piece. Um, but, but what do you mean by that, reading dark materials? What I find so exciting about Pullman, and one of the ways I think he's connecting to a lot of books in the literary tradition that he seems to care about and that I care about, is a conviction that reading really matters. That reading shrewdly and originally and I think with a spirit of dissent is the way that, that Milton would put it. Asking questions, quarreling, thinking about what you want to accept and what's gone before. That that's the foundation of ethics, of politics, and possibly even of the way you understand the natural world around you. So, so reading is much bigger than just, uh, uh, you know, taking a class on a, on a book or, or reading for pleasure is the sense that I get then. I think the pleasure is really wrapped up with hard work. Uh -huh. And that's one of the ways that I find that Pullman, who is so interested in engaging Milton and other people who've read Milton, it's a way I find him in a really similar spirit to the 17th century reformist, very busy political government official. This um, Calvinist, I would say, belief that hard work is fun. <laughs> yes. So... You bring up Calvin there, um, of course, in Pullman's alternate world, uh, Lyra's world, that is, uh, Calvin, John Calvin becomes the Pope of the Catholic Church, and, and it sort of morphs into this all-encompassing uh, magisterium uh, institution. Um, it's a really, really interesting sort of point of departure for his alternate history, and, and I'm, I'm very interested in maybe looking at that a little bit more closely uh, with respect to Milton. But, but could you say just a little more about how you first got interested in Milton and, and sort of chose that to be a, a focus for your, your studies? In Milton, not Pullman? In Pull, uh, sorry, in Milton, if I said Pullman. I meant uh, John Milton. Yes. You meant John Milton. Okay. Um, like most 20th and 21st century readers, I was appalled by what I thought I knew about Milton and then began reading... Paradise Lost, which took a couple of reads before it drew me in and made sense and started to um, be intellectually pleasurable. I think the language is pleasurable faster than the ideas. Even the language for most of us doesn't come really quickly. People talk about how beautiful Paradise Lost is, which it is, but it's not always beautiful to everyone the first time you pick it up and you can't find where the sentences end and you don't see who's saying what to whom. And once you get through a bit, take a deep breath and calm down about that, then you find yourself saying, yeah, this is beautiful. What interested me, I think, 
is how urgently questions are felt there that are really important to us today. Questions about gender, questions about the place of spirituality and separation of church and state and when that works and when it doesn't work to take all of your ethics out of politics. Um, but I fell into it mostly by teaching. I, I think I hadn't understood that I was going to be hired as a Miltonist because only one chapter of my dissertation was on Milton. That's the way that the profession pushed me. And as I just started reading Paradise Lost again and again with different classrooms full of students who showed me so many fascinating and unexpected things in it, every time I read it, I became enthralled. I, so my approach to Milton is actually through Pullman. Um, he, you know, takes a, a long passage, um, I think from book two, uh, for his, his epigraph to, to the series. Um, and that, that phrase, uh, his dark materials comes from there. It's, it's sort of the uncreated cosmic or chaotic stuff. Possibility, yeah. Yeah. And, and is that uh, dark matter, dust, um, that, that Pullman uh, writes about, how much of that do you think maps onto what what was Milton's idea of that dark material or dark yeah. matter? Uh, mm -hmm. how, how similar is it to, to Pullman's dust? An interesting thing about the title coming from that passage, I don't think that Paradise Lost is profoundly interested in this. I think it's interested in passing. Um, the question, I think that Pullman is talking with the notion of monist vitalism, that matter and spirit are one, and that matter is sentient. Um, that interest absolutely is a 17th century question. 17, historians of 17th century politics and intellectualism um, talk a lot about vitalism, monism, as a path that was not taken. So. Simultaneously, in the 17th century, Cartesian dualism, separation of mind and matter, and all of the hierarchies that then map onto that, male, female, well, you know all the hierarchies that map onto that, that seemed to, by the end of the 17th century, have become common sense. And monist ways of thinking that everything is one seemed magical, old-fashioned. What is I think the best book on this is by Professor John Rogers. It's called The Matter of Revolution, where Rogers shows that in politics and natural philosophy, which is what they called science and literature, this idea that spirit and matter are one for about 10 to 20 years, that was an equal competitor with Cartesian dualism. And it was not clear which path the Western tradition was going to take. So I think that both Milton and Pullman are really interested in how far-reaching the consequences are of believing matter and spirit to be one or believing them to be separate. I think that there are lots and lots and lots of places where Pullman is interested in delving into really precise details of the language of Paradise Lost and playing out the possibilities of particular tropes and figures. That titular phrase, unless they, it's, um, so Satan ponders the abyss um, and sees chaos and says, these are unformed dark materials, which must, I haven't got the quotation right. He doesn't say that yet. He says, chaos, which must forever fight unless he, him, God declares them his dark materials to create new worlds. 
which I think is from Leibniz, the notion that you could have an infinite number of new worlds coming out of that. That I think is not one of the places that Pullman is really grabbing something that really matters to Milton, that both of them play out at great lengths. Yeah, no, as you, as you started talking about that, I was thinking, you know, maybe it's more of kind of that, that verbal echo between dark matter, our sort of scientific mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. notion, and, and dark materials, which he, of course, uh, picked up on from, from Milton. Um, so he talks about, you know, studying Milton's uh, Paradise Lost, I think just books one and two as a, as a student um, in his younger days, and how he was sort of carried away by the majesty and the grandeur of the language without necessarily knowing what it meant at all points, you know, and um, I, I can definitely relate to that. Um, but I think it was partly because I read Pullman's work um, that I did have sort of a lens going into, you know, um, Paradise Lost, which is rather different probably from well, definitely different from whatever Milton might have intended uh, since he was hundreds of years before Pullman, um, but, but also different from a lot of people who might come to it uh, maybe from a more religious standpoint or a purely you know, classic epic poetry, like I've never read uh, Latin, you know, Aeneid or anything like that. So, so I think you can combat it from a lot of, of different angles. Um, so it sounds like you, you approach it um, sort of in the context of the, the history of ideas, um, and specifically maybe some um, particular ideas about uh, gender. And um, I, I'm curious about how you take then um, Pullman's characterization of Will and Lyra as kind of his, you know, uh, reworking, reimagining of, of Adam and Eve, uh, or even mm-hmm. Adam. Um, you broke up there, Adam and Eve, or what? Uh, or even to Adam, I guess, sort of to get the order straight. For yeah, yeah, to get the order straight. First. Yeah, I think there's a complex redistribution of work from Paradise Lost into Pullman. So I think things like the new dispensation that Will and Lyra negotiate for what's going to happen to the spirits of the dead, how they can be released into the cosmos to be part of everything. I think they're also taking over some of the work that the Sun does in the Christian Trinity yeah. in Paradise Lost. So... I think part of the, I'm not sure that Pullman is especially interested in Adam um, as a figure. I think that Will and Lyra, um, I argue in the piece that you mentioned, take on some of the jobs of art and of the human will, um, of manual work with knives as weapons and readerly work with instruments of interpretation that have to come together to get work done in the world, but to have full effect have to be separated again. They have to go into their separate universes because you can't put art and reality completely together all the time. If they collapse, you don't get that um, almost messianic resolution where the spirits of the dead can tell their own stories and go be part of the rest of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that moment, um, sort of Will and Lyra coming together, uh, passing through the land of the dead, um, that happens before their kind of uh, messianic moment of, of rescuing the, the sort of the flow of dust as, um, as the uh, Mary Malone character can see with her, with her amber spyglass, which is the third of those kind of important instruments. 
Um, and you talked there about sort of the, the distance that you mentioned, right? The, mm -hmm. the spyglass doesn't work as long as the two panels are, are, are pat on each other. They have to be sort of a, a hand's breadth apart, right? And, and that's mm -hmm. sort of, um, her, her distance from things is very marked, but it's her sort of storytelling by the mm -hmm. same token that, that leads uh, Lyra to um, sort of take that big step um, to uh, sort of to fall, as it were, right? To, to fall into uh, full maturity. Um, and th those two moments, the, the passage through the underworld, uh, the land of the dead, and the release of the dead, and the uh, sort of awakening to full consciousness, right, uh, and maturity, um, those two moments, I think, are an, an interesting kind of tension. And I guess the third one I'd put with that is when Will and Lyra do have to separate at the end, right? They have to go back to their separate worlds. Um, I think each of those really does kind of play on this, this problem of, of unity or, or the sort of metaphysical like monism, right, and, and vitalism versus this, uh, this agony, right, of, of you know, struggling against parts of yourself at all times that, you know, are pulling you higher, pulling you lower, whatever, that sort of um, hierarchical self, that, that multiple self, right? Um, I don't, I, I know that, you know, Pullman says a lot of interesting things through his story. I think I'd agree with you that if this is what you're saying, that he doesn't necessarily have a hard and fast, you know, philosophy around this, this topic. Um, he, he does call himself an atheist, mm -hmm. right? And he, he certainly doesn't have much to say about the sun uh, in this trilogy. Um, what, what would you take to be uh, his, the way his, his trilogy ends? Uh, how would it compare with the way that um, Milton's Paradise Lost ends with, with Adam and Eve sort of heading out of the garden, but together? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I actually might argue that he has quite a lot to say about the sun, but wants to say, no, let's look at this in completely incarnate human form. What I think is so interesting in the relation of Pullman's trilogy to Milton and to the reformist tradition it comes out of is I think he's playing with accepting the questions as all the right questions. And, and the reading, I think, is that Paradise Lost goes 85% of the way towards trying to answer it and then takes a disastrous wrong turn. So one disastrous wrong turn is, okay, let's suppose you use the example, what if the Reformation never happened? What if the Luther and Calvinist critique of the Catholic Church was assimilated rather than causing a schism and a counter-reformation? So it makes perfect sense. You would move the papacy to Geneva, and then you'd have this horrifying theocracy, yes. right? So it's 85% of the way, and then disastrous wrong turn. And I think similarly, the idea that... Um, Milton works tirelessly in his political life for the Republic to have a Commonwealth in England. His theology is about the kingdom of heaven. Pullman wants to cross that and say, no, no, what if heaven were the Republic, which is what King Ogunwe calls it. They're striving for the Republic of heaven. So instead of making the, who's the crazy Jesuit, Father Gomez, <laughs> instead of doing the crazy Jesuit move where you kind of push off the stuff you don't want to have to think about into um, a divine mythology. Like, no, let's take responsibility and see what embodied beings can do because we actually have more capacity 
as Balthamos is always saying, to have body and spirit gives you more than if you only had spirit. To use all of that to address inequality, mm. slavery, dispiritedness, depression, you know, everything that goes wrong. Yeah, and I, Pullman's um, sort of ultimate vision then does strike me as very optimistic, actually, um, as it's characterized as sort of Lyra and Will in their separate worlds working to build the Republic of Heaven, right, as they say. And, and he has, you know, talked about this outside of um, his fiction as well. Um, he talks about sort of the importance in believing in, in that, you know, and, and that's sort of the locus of his faith as it, uh, as it has moved from, you know, a, a kind of mythological Christian structure to this new yeah. mythological thing that he's formed by amalgamating history, uh, poetry, religion, yeah. even. Um, yeah. it, and so when you, I guess if you thought about like teaching this book um, to a group of students in a, in a university, I wonder if you'd approach that rather differently than teaching it to a group of students in a public school setting or, mm -hmm. you know, cause where, where you aren't, it's, it's tougher to kind of approach things with that uh, religious substructure to them. Yeah. You, know, you can't assume that kids have got all of that um, right. or, you know, that they're going to be able to, talk about it in a um, mature fashion. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. yeah. Um, but if you were to teach it in a university, uh, yeah. have you taught it and, and yeah. how does that go? Um, it goes well. Can I back up and address one thing you said before oh, and yeah. then not, not forget this? Um, I just, I like the, I love the way you put that about Lyra and Will, the optimism of them going off to build a multi-universe Republic of heaven across their worlds. But one of the things that I think makes it really significant art, these novels, is there is that loss. Yes. That, that Lyra and Will having to sacrifice actual proximity to each other is made even more heart-wrenching by its implicit contrast to Adam and Eve walking hand in hand out of paradise. And in Paradise Lost, you have that wonderfully ambiguous phrase, the whole epic ends um, hand in hand, through Eden took their solitary way. And I'm not sure whether that means they're still in Eden, even though the narrative suggested that this is after they pass out of its gates, or whether it means hand in hand, they're in Eden wherever they go. Oh. That, that little bit of Eden goes with them. And that's exactly what Will and Lyra can only have imaginatively. And that means something, that they ritually revisit each other at that bench, um, that's one of the scenes that most precisely recalls Paradise Lost. Um, as you know, it's, it's not just books one and two, it's the whole epic has these details that Pullman loves to mine. So Will and Lyra part from each other under a many-branched pine, which recalls the part um, after the fall in Eden, where Adam says to the angel what most afflicts him about having to leave Eden is he won't be able to say to his sons, under this pine, I sat with God and heard his voice. It's that exact scene that's getting displaced to the Oxford Botanic Garden. Um, so they will have some approach to each other, but just as humans in Paradise Lost only have mediated access to God, to footsteps and tracks divine, um, the, the Archangel Michael tells them God is as here. It's not the same as being here. So there is this huge loss that they do sacrifice immediate erotic 
presence of each other. So there is that huge loss, even as they go on their optimistic way. And I, I think that's part of the trilogy says it's hard. Mm. You, you have to make choices. And I think that's part of what would inform the way you teach it and talk about it um, with different people. I'm always surprised that people want middle schoolers to read Pullman, not because of the sexy bits. I mean, it does say sex will save the world, <laughs> which I think is probably what middle schoolers think too. That's fine. To me, what's much more unsettling about it, I read the books as they came out. So when I read The Golden Compass, I then had to wait three years. Me too, yeah. Before, yeah, before, and I would, I, I, was, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was married. I didn't have kids. I was in my earliest 20s, early to mid 20s. I was very unsettled by the way the novels are playing with, I think, the problem in Paradise Lost of how readers respond to Satan. So the famous Stanley Fish argument is that the that Paradise Lost amps up the epic machinery to make us sympathize with Satan. And every time we think we're saying, no, no, he's Satan, he's wrong, God's way is right, then the epic violins start to swell and we get heroic speeches and we're put into soundtracks that we can't escape from. And we once again find ourselves saying, but that's not fair. I don't think God's order makes any sense. You know, and so that gets displaced, I think, in Pullman into a much more psychologically and emotionally wrenching the end of the golden compass. What do I think about Azrael? I don't know what I think. Is he good? Is he bad? It's, it's genuine moral uncertainty, which I wouldn't have wanted to do in middle school. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's to the point where when they filmed that, uh, they completely cut that whole ending, right? And, and, you know, of course, fans of the books are enraged and I guess soon we'll maybe see a, a mini series version where maybe they'll put it all together some other way but but I, I agree I mean uh, as a kid when I was reading these as they came out I was probably in middle school I guess and uh, they they were so you know so much more affecting to me than than even other the books that I had read before that uh, like The Hobbit and you know the C.S. Lewis Narnia books that you know oh so there's another book like those that you'll probably like you know that's kind of how um, mm -hmm. the Golden Compass is marketed. <laughs> it's like, it's deeply uh, uh, sort of subversive. Um, and and I think I, yeah, I, I haven't read The Fish. Um, I, I, I'm sort of aware of it, but I, I know that Pullman speaks about Blake's, you know, vision of Milton. That's sort of the lens, it seems to me, by which Pullman comes at Milton is through Blake's um, sort of like, you know, championing of, of the Lucifer, the Satan character. Uh, as as the you know the the poetic you know power coming through against Milton's own will or something like that right like of the I, devil's party without knowing it yeah, yeah yeah uh, and so the um, the way that that first book ends with yeah with Lord Asriel the, the sort of Luciferian character uh, doing this awful thing and and opening this this breach you know in reality as a result um, it is. But I think the saving grace there, I guess, and this is an important point too, is, is Lyra and Pan are still together, right? And so they're sort of walking out of the world, but, but hand in hand almost, right? Like together. Yeah. Um, and, and again, so that, that, um, that sort of complexity within the, the monism or the, the, uni the unity um, does seem like it's, it's always kind of embedded there. Um, so, the way that 
I sort of get concerned about trying to teach this book too is that throughout it, Pullman seems rather, uh, he has sort of complicated relationship with scholarship, it seems like, because mm -hmm. the scholars, you know, they've raised Lyra and they sort of love her in their own way, um, but they don't really understand her, you know, either. Uh, they try to teach her things and she gets bored and wanders off, right? It's only at the end of her long kind of journey that she sees the value and the, the necessity, I guess, of, of putting in that scholarly kind of work. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of conflicted about like, yeah, is it right to try to teach these books? Or is it more something that, you know, kids find them or, or adults, you know, find them, read them for pleasure and, and then sort of get drawn into wanting to kind of wrestle with them and, and discuss them and, and delve into all of Pullman's, you know, rich learning that he's woven into it. So what do you think of that? I had a student who had exactly that reaction. Um, okay. I, teach, I teach this trilogy in a variety of contexts. Um, this was, I think, in a, in a whole class on children's literature. And she, ex she, she really found it dis, she, she's like, I don't want to think about that. I just, I love this story. I, and what was so beautiful about that response is we could talk about innocence and experience. Right. I think that's exactly what Lyra finds, right? When she's a child, she can read the alethiometer by intuition. She loses the ability um, with experience and she's crestfallen. It's a tremendous loss. Then she learns that she can relearn with a tremendous amount of work to read it. She says, I did read it by grace. She makes the Calvinist distinction. Now I can read it by work. And reading by work is better and fuller um, than reading that comes freely. So I think that what happens is their adventures, it's not that scholarship is unchanged between the beginning and the end of the book. When Lyra is in those colleges, I think that the deficiency is on both sides. I think that as a dissenting child with no interest in formal learning, um, Lyra is not probably prepared to, to see the value of what is there, but there's a lot wrong with what's there, right? She's in a completely male setting. Um, as you know, in the Lens, I think I talk about it as the setting of the Plato Symposium, that it's um, a room full of men with men up on the walls, um, there is no place for her at the table. So she hides in a wardrobe on a cloak, just like, just like Lucy in the wardrobe. But that's a completely masculinist, Whiggish, Tory tradition, right? It's a very obedient. Lewis's reading of Paradise Lost is sensitive and beautiful, but not dissenting. Very obedient. So she's in this tradition that has nothing. And then remember how surprised she is at the very end when she's like, oh, Dame Hannah is not a complete nothing. Right? There is another college in the university where there are women, and you know she actually, so Mary Malone and Dame Hannah are academics mm -hmm. with some richness and some nuance and some creativity and some love, and so that's the way that you need to read. And so, you know, that, that line about reading by work is better and fuller and more joyous than what you can get simply by instinct, I think convinced my student by the end of the course, but that's exactly how she experienced academic study of this the first day that we did it as a fall. <laughs> yeah, that, so that sort of recapitulation of, of the fall that takes place as you read, uh, I think it, I mean, it does seem quite artful uh, and sort of meta, you know, I don't, again, I don't know how much Pullman really thought that 
thought that out, you know, and worked out how am I going to achieve this thing, how much it just sort of happens in the course of the story because of the kinds of themes of innocence and experience he's interested in. Um, it, I mean, it's very interesting to me the way that some, some other scholars approach this book with, um, you know, all, all sorts of other critical lenses that they might sort of take on it, right? Um, and uh, and I, I just don't know, personally, I don't find those as, as sort of persuasive or as interesting really as, as sort of using the kinds of tools that Pullman himself seems to be most interested in mm -hmm. using. Um, things like, Can we talk? go ahead. I just wanted to pick up on your word tools there because I think I think you're um, I think you're right to want to go past the question of how thoroughly was this all mapped out strategically by an author sitting down. I think you're exactly right that by using the literary tradition and using the tools of that tradition, like um, ex scriptural exegesis by means of fantasy fiction. Yeah. Um, by means of Spencerian types of allegory. Um, is that your demon? Uh, yeah, one of my three, yes. <laughs> um, I think that those materials carry with them in their DNA rich responses to this. So when you have an adaptation, I don't think that the pen through which a particular instantiation is coming has to have completely thoroughly um, cognitively mapped out exactly what's going to happen. I think the materials speak it. So when you think about adaptation more generally, um, some other adaptations that I write about and teach are box office films. Mm. Um, two examples that come to mind are Taylor Hackford, you know, the B-movie guy, has a, um, a Paradise Lost film called Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves, who's maybe 17 years old as Adam <laughs> in the Adam role. Or another film, Billy Morissette has a Macbeth film, Scotland, PA. And I feel that both of those films end up offering really interesting readings of their source materials and um, readings that have positions on 17th century controversies. So this Billy Morris at Scotland, PA, which is set in a diner in um, Pennsylvania, winds up making some suggestions about paternity and paternalism and politics that I think are quite illuminating with regard to the Jacobean court. Do I think Billy Morissette has studied the court of King James? I have no idea, maybe, but possibly not. But when you're working with Macbeth, those questions just get pulled on and the materials, um, you know, people talk about this like memes. They, they make their way into the genetics of the literary tradition. And when they're set free in the right context, they, they can do work whether or not you realize it's doing work, which brings us to Yorick Bernison, the expert on tools, ah. stage dictum that you may have intentions, but a tool has intentions too. And you can't always control with it, right? A knife wants to cut yeah. and it may not matter what you want to do with it. I think using the literary tradition in an adaptation can work that way as well. That makes me think of, so one of the first big images in the book is the photogram that Lord Asriel shows to the mm -hmm. scholars. And and to Lyra by extension, right? Because he's he's positioned her so that she can see and and hear what they're saying. But but he has this picture where there's there's um, just the the sky, and then there's the picture where it's all shiny, right, with the dust. And and later when she goes to the museums and she sees the skulls, you know, some of the skulls don't have much dust around them, and some have have a lot more, right? The the trepan skulls, and and some of the tools do too, right? And so I wonder about that that idea of consciousness you know, 
having sort of manifest effects in the world, um, the way that that is represented metaphorically, but maybe it's actually kind of literal. It, it sounds mm -hmm. like too, like that, that is simply the case that um, the, 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 the matter uh, of a, a living sort of meaning infused world has a kind of consciousness of its own. Mm -hmm. um, with, with that sort of idea, I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting to think about the kinds of things that will happen now that, um, you know, people are able to uh, sort of communicate easily across great distances, right? Um, as we're starting to create, you know, actual artificial intelligence as well. Um, what sort of things that will do to our experience of, you know, the humanities? I mean, I'm sure is something that you must think about a lot as a as a teacher, an, an instructor in in that that field. Um, how how are you able to sort of start to incorporate some of these new media and, and new technologies and things um, into that sort of long and and rich tradition of of, mm -hmm. of Western culture and mm -hmm. culture as a whole? Um, I think one answer to that is to see how much other moments that we care about in Western culture are moments of media change, hmm. right? So Homeric epic is written when the Greeks first invent their alphabet. Um, the first time they can start writing the epic that they've been reciting. Or the Renaissance, you know, exactly the world of Chittagatse, great media change from mostly manuscript to print as the dominant medium. So I think situating our moment of media change along a continuum where media change as they change, you tend to gain a different perspective on what went right before. Every time you feel keenly the losses, you get excited about the possibilities, and these are all opportunities to reflect with particular clarity on how persons and artifacts and media all interact to make meaning and but, make the wisest choices. Yeah, so that sounds like then uh, it's, it's crucially important then to sort of have a sense of history, right, and, and to see this as not like a totally unprecedented thing, right? But something that is a natural consequence of all of those prior uh, sort of leaps and, and, and changes and transformations. That, so that's interesting. And then in that sense, um, how, how do you think about your work as a scholar, um, an academic writer being a kind of adaptation of that story? Because it seems like that's, that's the way that that history and those stories get sort of passed on it is through the the kind of scholarly endeavor um, of specifically of teaching but also of researching and, and finding new ways to sort of combine things and 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 cross fertilize with other disciplines and things right so how do you um, how do you sort of see what you do writing and teaching as a kind of adaptation of these works um, yeah. I don't know if you literally sort of stage maybe scenes to try to get some kind of involvement, th things like that, but maybe other subtler ways too. Yeah. I think um, that's a really good question. I think if I could answer it better, I would be further on the path to wisdom than I am. The part of it I've thought about more is maybe almost the converse of seeing how adaptations like Pullman's of Paradise Lost or Mary Shelley's of Paradise Lost, how those are doing the same thing I do, how they're making arguments in fictional form about their source texts. 
so one of the main things I do as a scholar is try to help all readers hear those conversations, mm-hmm. just to be able to um, amplify in a scholarly idiom what these works are doing in a fictional idiom. I would be really happy to think that anything you could do in a scholarly idiom, idiom could have that much influence, which it won't. I mean, that's the beauty of Mary Shelley or Philip Pullman as Milton scholars, right, is that they're reaching just a much wider audience. And I think that's why adaptation is a really interesting thing to study, maybe particularly if you're really interested in the canon, because you could say, ah, no one reads Virgil, no one reads Milton. Or you could say, everybody knows the Virgilian underworld because you see it in Milton. You know, you get it in Game of Thrones, those kinds of things. Um, So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I again, yeah. I think I think that is a really interesting way of looking at um, fiction as a kind of um, didactic, you know, pedagogical uh, vehicle almost. Um, and again, maybe against the will even of the of the writer, right? That's sort of like inherent in their material is that sort of content and that uh, slant that that comes through it. Um, that that I think is well. I mean, maybe uh, a whole other discussion, I guess. But but with um, with the uh, the idea of adaptation in mind, um, so part of what I, I'm trying to do with this project is uh, think about ways that Pullman's work could be adapted, you know, imaginatively for now, not like literally, but just <laughs> how it would look if it were to be made into a, a video game, because that's the kind of storytelling vehicle that I was most familiar with as a kid and that sort of like the way that Pullman got me into Milton well I think video games more than anything got me into reading books actually Uh, and and I think that that's kind of an interesting I think it's a a a weird um and not fully understood process right because because we don't usually think of like teaching video games or something like that um but I think that they are kind of powerful um as, as educational tools. But, but anyway, um, like if there were a video game of the golden compass, uh, what would you want to see it, um, sort of provide or like be able to do? I I don't know if that's something you'd have ever thought about, but, um, I have a lot of different responses to that. I mean, to me, every time you said educational or pedagogical or didactic, um, I was about to think, huh, I wonder if I agree. And I was like, yeah, okay, I think I agree. And I think that, that what I was snagging on is the question of whether being pedagogical or didactic is about answers or questions. Mm-hmm. I don't think that good art tells you stuff. But I think that I agree with you that it's bringing new generations of readers into the conversations, posing questions for them to think about. Yeah. Um, so I would think that I have very mixed and complicated feelings of admiration and fear and everything for um, remediation of that kind. Um, Because I think that so many great artworks are about their own form, Mm -hmm. right? It's like Lolita is a novel about being novels. So I don't understand why you try to make a film. Um, I think that the golden compass is exegetical fiction about exegetical fiction. So would you want to take it off the page? But I'm prepared to say, yeah, maybe you would. And I think that um, I, my thinking on this has been shaped by, I think three things. A lot of narratologists do talk a lot about gaming now. They think that's where narrative, you know, is happening. Um, 
there's some game designers who also teach in English departments who have really interesting things to say about how, I think the guy I'm thinking of at Utah, Alf Siegert is actually a board, he doesn't do video games, he does actual game games, mm -hmm. but thinking about how games can shape attention and pleasure and aesthetics, I can see that that, that would be an interesting thing to adapt a trilogy toward. Um, so to answer your question of what I would hope to see there, I'm not sure I want to see it, but if I did, <laughs> something that asks questions rather than provided answers and something that lets you delve in in all these different ways. As you said, a lot of readers will come to Pullman not having read Paradise Lost just as readers came to um, Narnia without knowing Milton and Gawain and the whole tradition that it's working with. Yeah. And what the reason I like Pullman so much more than Lewis is Pullman is, I think, about genuinely giving readers agency, giving them the questions without telling them what they should find and what the right answer is, which I think Lewis does rather more. But by having these multiple ways in, I would think that not knowing much about gaming is something a game could do something interesting with, that you can go in through Virgil, you can go in through Milton, you can go in through things that aren't in the literary tradition, right? You can go in through plot points to just see how multidimensional that is. Wouldn't it be interesting to mess with point of view? Yeah. What if the novel was sold to Galavespians? If you move, you know, the point of view in the game to different species? Oh, yeah. That, like that's that. something, I, yeah, I think, depending on how, you know, over the top you want to, Think about it like you could play as multiple different characters and, and play mm -hmm. through the story right and and see mm -hmm. the things that they see and do the things that they do like you know stories that Farter Coram tells you get to go back in time and be Farter Coram and go yeah. through his or John Fa and these like campaigns that he's been on whatever that was right and you know that's sort of like what Pullman is doing now with this the sequels or these yeah. the, the, sequels. Yeah. the book of dust is sort of yeah. like exploring the the wider backgrounds of this world and and seeing what might be there you know and he uh, he explicitly pulls on uh, spencer now who's kind of that mm -hmm. other um less even less read than milton right you know epic english writer uh and and uh gets a lot of fairy and elements into this this new series so it's really it's quite interesting um yeah i i, I would love to to make an adaptation that that sort of expanded on your ability to explore elements of the world that the story proper doesn't really concern itself with uh, as much and, and doesn't have time for maybe. But, yeah. um, but as far as, you know, actually uh, studying games or, you know, learning from books, I, I'd agree that, you know, at, at that level, um, for it to be a story, for it to be, um, free right you have to be able to sort of ask questions and and discuss them and, and work with them and not be getting like a kind of dogmatic answer so much uh however i would say that pullman in his read of tolkien and lewis is rather less than charitable um i mean i agree that they are especially lewis particularly in those narnia books he has a kind of dogmatic you know, bent to him, but, but at the same time, you know, those books are ones that I loved as a kid. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and I think that they're like, they're great as stories too. And I just don't know that Pullman is a, is a very uh, fair or maybe a very careful reader, or maybe he's just being sort of polemical. I, I don't know. What is your, your take on his critiques of, 
of uh, his uh, Oxford um, forebears? I, I think he's spot on with Lewis, um, but I do think, I don't know if I agree that it's ungenerous. I see what you mean. And I will say, I want, every time I pick up one of the Narnia books, I love it. I, I'm charmed every time. Um, even as I'm appalled, Susan is excluded from the elect. She cares about lipstick at the end. Um, but what is charming is that power of language. And Lewis has such mastery of um, voice and the unexpected twists and, um, you know, the way that he thinks about election, the way that Narnia does some of this fictional exegesis is quite complicated and provocative just as a way of expressing theological positions with, um, oh, let me give you an example. It, it's very hard to, when you're teaching Calvinist theology to wrap non-reformist kids mind around the notion of election. How could a fair God have an elect? The way that Lewis does that with, well, some of the animals can talk, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the lives of the other animals who aren't sentient the same way and don't talk. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I see. It, it works brilliantly as exegesis. Um, I do think that there's a real Anglican Tory sensibility that is not, I think that's rock bottom in Narnia. Mm -hmm. You know, the there's political hierarchies and there's theological right answers. Um, and I think it's, I, I find the critique of that quite done with a lot of nuance and complexity on the narrative level. Mm -hmm. Things like Lyra starting on a cloak in a wardrobe, but then asking the question, do you remember in that very first scene, she pings, she pings a glass. Yes. And the sound rings out, right? So it's just like that horrible thing that happens, um, you know, in Jadis's world. Do you remember that? No. Um, so this is where Polly and Diggory are in one of those alternative worlds. They're the ones who first bring the White Witch. That's where they get the White Witch, and she winds up back in Narnia. Um, it's a world that has been destroyed. It's had an apocalypse. And all of the cruel, half-giant nobles are frozen where they were when time ended. And there's a, a sign that, that says, um, Diggory takes the bait. The sign is, strike the bell and bear the danger, maybe, uh -huh. or you'll go mad wondering what would have happened if, if you hadn't. I wish I knew this was going to come up and I would have had all my quotations. Me too. <laughs> better mastered. Um, so that's what, that's what Lyra is recapitulating in that very first uh -huh. scene in The Golden Compass. Is she is breaking the prohibition that Diggory uh, got in so much trouble you know, Diggory and Polly got in trouble for breaking because a fall is a fall in Lewis. Mm -hmm. And a fall is the way into experience, which is richer and fuller than innocence in Pullman. That's, that's a really interesting connection. I, I guess I haven't read those books in a long, long time. I need to look at that. I, the, other, the other angle on this same kind of question, though, which I wanted to push you on a little bit, is mm -hmm. that a lot of readers when they come to the Amber Spyglass, you know, they follow the story, they love the characters, they're sort of uncomfortable with some of the theology and, and all that, but, but they're going with it. And then they come to the end and they just sort of want to throw the book across the room because it's, it does become a lot more overt and you have the death of God, you know, and you have gay angels and, you know, all the, the crazy Jesuit, right? And so there's a lot, there's a lot more kind of in your face uh, of Pullman's sort of secular humanist uh, theology, if you like, right, that, that comes through in that book. Um, but I, 
I've always still liked the book. You know, I, I still, I can see that argument and to an extent I can go with it, but it just doesn't, I never feel bothered or put upon by that stuff, even as much as I do, you know, looking back at Lewis now or, or something like that. So how do you kind of square things that Pullman says outside the work about how you have to sort of, sort of be able to have openness to questions and, and be free to read and perceive how you want, then have this story that does seem to be leading you in a, in a pretty direct kind of way mm -hmm. there at the end. I think it's making an argument about playing out um, some propositions to their logical conclusion. Mm -hmm. So, and a lot of those I think um, do come from the literary tradition. You know, the, the gay angels, that's from um, when there's two places in Paradise Lost. There's one place where Adam asks Raphael if angels have sex. And Raphael says, well, we're happy. What do you think? And he <laughs> blushes. And then there's another place where Paradise Lost says that, um, well, actually, Paradise Lost, the narrator says that angels can assume either sex. It's Adam when he's fallen and he's berating Eve that he asks, why could God who peopled heaven with spirits masculine, why did God have to create this fair defect on earth called woman? So what's sort of interesting is that what Pullman's doing is this kind of complicated, I think, triangulation of Adam's fallen misogynistic fantasy of just not having any women mm -hmm. going together with, yes, angels have sex, means angels have gay sex. Um, but that doesn't come entirely from angelology. It's what happens when you mix in the consequence of Adam's misogynist response to living and having to deal with girls, which is mm. gross. <laughs> um, and I think it's a lot of those similar things that if you play out to the logical consequence, um, if, you, if you ascribe that kind of authority to the church, you're going to wind up in a theocracy. Is that what you want? No, because then science can't actually happen. Science married with reading might be what you need to save the cosmos. So I guess my problem towards the end of The Amber Spyglass is not that it's um, secularly didactic, it's that it's gooey, right? Mm. It gets kind of sentimental, right? Blah, 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 love, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the way I rescue that for myself is Adam and Eve do exactly the same thing in the garden. There's these epithalamia where Eve just starts going on about how when she's with Adam, all seasons please alike, morning, evening, all to me equally sweet. And I think it's a thing about love and language and how when you're in love, you just sort of can't stop talking. Um, and if you're in the right mood, it's beautiful. And it really pulls on the narrative if you're just not in the mood for it. So I don't know if that offsets some of the more programmatic things you're asking about. Um, yeah, no, that's, that is a really interesting way to think about the, the problem then of, of not having sufficient distance from the text, because I think I might just like these books too much to, to be able to see a lot of the defects that other people can, you know, not avoid seeing. Um, and yeah, I, I, I would agree that they, they represent um, in places uh, a kind of sentimentality, uh, kind of romantic uh, uh, exuberance that maybe, yeah, from an aesthetic point of view is not all that um, satisfying or something. Yeah, I, I could see that. But before we run out of time here, I did want to ask about your current work that you're um, doing with, um, with Milton and Adaptation. Um, mm -hmm. How is that going? What, what are you kind of focusing on and, and what do you want to do next? So right now what I'm focusing on is a book about Milton's Eve and mediation in a way that Paradise Lost is part of a tradition that thinks about mediation as the human condition. So this is, comes out of exactly the question you asked about 20 minutes ago about like, 
what about all this new media? What is this going to do to the literary tradition, right? So I'm just interested in thinking about the ways that things from the Gospel of John to Homer um, to Paradise Lost, we think of these as the past, but they're all thinking about the same question about mediation. And I think a lot of the things we worry about with Eve, and especially with Milton's rendition of Eve, is that because she's interested in mediation, um, in reflections, in overhearing conversations, she's foolish and vain. And I'm asking, well, what if mediation's the, the human condition, maybe she's a new media scholar. Maybe she's really smart and has a lot of wisdom to offer us. So I'm looking at that, and in the second half of my book, I look at adaptations as a kind of mediation. So there's a Pullman chapter, there's a Frankenstein chapter, and I think about ways we do still have access to Virgil and Homer and Milton through adaptation. So it's not the case that nobody reads Virgil, they just read it through TV shows. Yeah, yeah. The the translation of, of old material and old language even is sort of a constantly ongoing process. And and maybe, you know, a, a lot of the kind of poetic effects that are new to us, right, are, are really old ones that the that mm -hmm. kind of worked their way and trickled their way through uh, all these iterations and, and manifestations. And things. Well, that, that's fascinating. Um, so, gosh, uh, thanks so much for your time, uh, Dr. Lawrence Schoet, uh, creative uh, and, and fascinating uh, reading, um, reading dark materials. I, I highly recommend it. And, and your new book, what's the title again? The one that I'm in the middle of now yeah. um, is called Me Mediation, Remedy, and Milton's Paradise Lost. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, thank and you of course, so much for having me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'll keep in touch and, um, and I, I wish you the best. Likewise. Thanks. Many thanks again to Dr. Lauren Showett for that interview. A few other notes and news here. I've been looking over a few of the existing and still active fan sites dedicated to Philip Pullman and his dark materials. It looks like the Bridge to the Stars, which is cited in lots of books as the, uh, the main one, is not really active anymore. A um, number of links on there still work, but others don't, and the forum doesn't seem to have any recent activity. However, the French language uh, fan site, Sitigatsi, uh, does seem to be working still, and uh, I'm interested in trying to dust off my French to uh, talk to some people on there sometime soon. They also have a Twitter handle, Twitagatsi, delightfully named, and uh, which posts things which are either in English or Twitter automatically translates. I'm not really sure, but either way, worth checking out. Um, they were one of the first to break some of the news about this uh, new BBC series trailer. Uh, you can find that easily on YouTube and lots of other places too. It's short, but it gives a nice sense of some of the star power behind the new series adaptation, and uh, you even get a glimpse of a rectangular-looking alethiometer. So that's pretty tantalizing. Um, the other news that I've turned up here, uh, as I've been reading around, uh, Philip Pullman was knighted uh, around New Year's, apparently. Um, so he's now Sir Philip, which is pretty cool. Um, his comment that's quoted in the BBC article about it, uh, he is very surprised and honored. Um, he said he was proud 
to be in the company of many people he admired. Some of those he names, Quentin Blake, Ellen MacArthur, Chris Hoy, Jacqueline Wilson, Nicholas Hitner, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, Bryn Turfel, Ray Davies, Mary Beard. I think only the last one have I ever actually heard of, I'm sorry to say. So more things to read about, I suppose. And for those of us who are interested in all things Pullman and all the things that he's interested in, uh, the other news that came out, and this comes from a Guardian article too of 26 February by Allison Flood, the new Philip Pullman novel, The Secret Commonwealth, is due in October. The second volume of his Book of Dust trilogy finds Lyra now a student facing adult problems as she travels across Europe and into Asia. And there's really cool quotes here from Pullman. He says, quote, Things have been biding their time, waiting for the right moment to reveal their consequences for Lyra Silvertongue. The Secret Commonwealth tells the continuing story of the impact on Lyra's life, of the search for and the fear of dust. I found it intriguing and deeply exciting to discover how great events can turn on a little moment and how revenge can be nurtured and fed and watered till it grows beyond control. I think he's not outright quoting, but referring to a William Blake poem, The Poison Tree, in that last phrase there. He goes on and says, uh, Lyra, quote, knew he was right, but it wasn't right that he should speak to her accusingly, as if it was something to blame her for. I used to be young, was all she could find to say, writes Pullman. That's referring to a, a conflict between her and Pantalaimon that's in the um, the extract that's been released. And you can see that there, too. It's It looks like it's going to be a really interesting continuation of the story and uh, and that key theme of, of the relationship between Lyra and her demon. Uh, last little note here. I also turned up looking for fan sites. Um, some active discussion on the fandom wiki dedicated to his dark materials. Um, they don't have that much information on there uh, outside of the books themselves. Um, it seems to be a pretty cut and dry kind of encyclopedia type resource. Um, but I am enjoying some of the discussion that's also going on on there. So um, that's been another fun discovery. Anyway, I'll get out of your way here and leave you with just a few new songs one for the Samoyed Hunters, one for Bullvanger Lights, one for Sister Clara and her little white dog, and uh, the last one for the Demon Cages. Thanks for listening. <laughs>